0: Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the righteous testimony of a man like Zacharias, was able to be an eyewitness to the promised light that you sent through your son, Jesus Christ. Like him, we pray that you will lead us and guide us in paths of righteousness in your light, sustain us with your mercy, and empower us to tell the story, to tell the message of your redemptive love. And it's in the name of Christ we pray and ask these things. Amen. Good morning. My name is Gene Shepherd. I am one of the elders at Fullerton Free, and it's a pleasure to be able to share with you today. Whether you're in this auditorium or streaming online, it's just good to be able to gather together and talk about the great miraculous things of God. As we are in a short series on songs that were written by some of the eyewitnesses of the coming of Christ, I happen to have the song of Zachariah, and it was read to you already today, and we're going to talk about it and and the surroundings of the writing of that song. In some ways, I don't know why I got this task. I don't know why they picked me, because I will tell you right off the bat that at one time in my life, when I'm reading through the Bible, songs, these kind of poetic songs, are things that I'd skip over to go on. That and the genealogies. I could have a showing of hands of how many here skip through the genealogies and the songs, but let's not make that about that today, so close to Christmas. I will say, though, I kind of came to the place eventually where I saw the value in in those songs, and now I treat them differently. And then, on the other hand, I got to thinking I know why they picked me. We have a sneaky bunch of people who work at this church, somebody's been poking around in my business. Somebody has been going into places, putting their nose where they don't belong. Somebody has found out that I am a winner of a songwriting competition. That's true. I was the grand champion winner. Thanksgiving is a time of joy for every little girl and boy. The turkey's roasting juicy and brown. Relation comes from all over town. For all these blessings, great and small, we praise our God, the Lord of all. First place winner. Grand champion, Mrs. Kieser's third grade class. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. I did go on and have to write some other songs when I was taking music history, or, or excuse me, m- music theory. And uh, unfortunately, none of those ever quite lived up to the, the height of that Thanksgiving number. I think I peaked early, if you know what I mean. But I love songs, and I love the songs of the Bible. I I, I love thinking about them and and just contemplating how songwriters in the Bible took all of their experiences, information, things that they were given by the Holy Spirit, uh, impressions that they had, and they took all of that and they channeled it down and condensed it into a poetic, meaningfully poetic nugget of information. Nuggets can be made of gold, they can be made of silver, I guess. You could even have a nugget that was a diamond or a ruby, whatever. All of those condensation sorts of things, certainly in biblical songs, worked out to be very, very powerful. And the Israelites had songs for all sorts of things. They had for worship, for walking along the road, for work, for war, for weddings, for wakes... We even grab onto some of their songs sometimes when our rubber hits the road and we find ourselves in the hard place. Have you ever been with a loved one or a friend or have you ever prayed, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Songs are powerful. Religious songs can be powerful. Even secular songs can be powerful. Even sort of silly songs. I'm thinking of a song I know. It's written by somebody who is not a trained musician. Somebody only played by ear. It goes like this. In Penny Lane, there is a fireman with an hourglass. Let's play fill in the blanks. And in his pocket is a portrait of the? Thank you. He likes to keep his fire engine? Thank you. It is a? Very good. Very good. Now, very a lot of you people don't know that song. I, I noticed there must be a lot more older people over here than over here. <laughs> but it just goes to show my junior high music te- teacher was right. In 15 years, nobody's ever going to even remember Paul McCartney, okay, who wrote that song. I'm a little irritated by that song. Every time I hear it, I think to myself, I could have written that song. That could have been my next big hit. I didn't live in a place called Penny Lane, that's that's not, but I lived on Maid Street, which after three blocks turned onto First Street, and I went to school down those six blocks and backs every day of my life for eight years, plus hundreds of other times, because those streets are still there, and I go back to my hometown. We had a lot more interesting stuff on my street than Paul McCartney had on his. Our barbershop, for example, Mr. Neasel's barbershop. Neasel, what a great name that is. He had every comic book in the world in there. We had a parking meter guy that only had one arm. I could tell you stories about him all day. You you go three blocks and you think you've made it where you have to turn the corner, but the corner is where the old men sat and they chewed tobacco and spit. And they aimed at your feet and your legs. And they'd say rude things. Now, if you could get around that gauntlet, you you were like home free. I did that walk through all these weird characters, and I could tell you a whole lot more my whole growing up time. In the pouring rain, very strange. And let me tell you about when it was snowing. It was like going through a blizzard sometimes. And I'd say to my parents, I, I can't make it in this. And they'd say, sure you can. We used to do it in worse weather. We went barefoot, and I didn't wear a shirt. And so you go out in a blizzard, and it's like you're filming a scene from the miners trying to get through the Klondike for the Alaskan gold rush, and it's, you can't even see. And I was out in that, and it was after I had won that third-grade competition, and I thought to myself, I'm made for better things than this. And so I started limping as I walked. And within about 20 feet, somebody stopped and picked me up. And a lady said, you get in this car right now. You shouldn't be walking in this kind of weather. And I agreed with her. And I got in that car. (laughs) And I think she said something under her breath, sort of like, what kind of parents would... And I didn't hear the rest of it. But I thought, you go, girl. You go. (laughs) Speaking of snow, it was just a few months after the fall of the Iron Curtain that I found myself in Russia two hours out of Moscow, out in the middle of nowhere, trapped with 200 Russians in a retreat facility that was not very fancy at all. I'd been asked to come in and preach and teach about Bible things. I could do whatever I wanted. I had a team for high school and Caught kids and all different sorts of things. And, and I would preach a couple times a day. I'd do a couple of big discussion kind of lessons a day and I would meet with people, etc. I got to tell you, I wanted to go do that gig just about as much as Jonah wanted to go to Nineveh and preach. You see, I'm a child of the Cold War. I remember laying in bed at night, not being able to sleep during the Cuban Missile Crisis because I thought my life and my family's life might end with a cold, flashing, blinding heat of a nuclear attack. Remember my father patting my back, trying to calm me down? We'd go to school and we'd have these drills where we'd get under our desks to prepare for a nuclear attack. And just as I was a child of the Cold War, all the Russians were too. And they had similar experiences. And it's amazing to me how... Tense it was, especially that first day. It was like the worst first date ever. But somewhere about the second day, I, I, I don't know how this happened. and I can't remember if it was an American or a Russian that did this, but somebody mentioned a Beatles song as making a point in a discussion. Eyes got big, mouths dropped open. It, it's like the ceiling opened up and light came down on everyone. And, and giant hands came and unlocked the shackles that bound us to our prejudices and fears. Because finally, we had a neutral thing that was a common experience for all of us. Who knew Russians listened to Beatle music? I didn't know that. But they not only listened to it, they they had PhDs in it. I mean, they just wanted to talk about it all the time. It it, It gave us something to talk about, something that connected us. Now, we did not change our preaching schedule and what we were there to communicate. We were there to communicate the gospel. But what happened was we found a connection. We found out that we were all in Paul McCartney's circle. We understood each other. And some things as simple as talking about a song you liked brought back all kinds of images. They didn't live on Penny Lane just like I didn't live on Penny Lane. But we all had a street that conjured up those kinds of images just like listening to his Penny Lane did. Because I had an American Penny Lane, they had a Russian Penny Lane. And by making that connection, we found a way to be able to hold hands and become acquainted and then allowed us to lead them to a place where we could talk about the important acts of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of them accepted Christ as a result of that trip and at least nine others that I made over a number of years. I still keep touch with some of those people. Songs can be pretty... Pactful. I talked about bringing all those things down and condensing them into a poetic memory nugget. It, it's a little bit like journaling, I think, where you take all of this information that you have and yet you try to bring it down and bring it into a point where we can understand it, we can handle it, we can remember it, and we can communicate it. And that's why we're talking about the Song of Zechariah. It's right that Luke starts his gospel talking about this man. Because he tells us at the beginning of the gospel that he writes that one of the things he's trying to do is get as many eyewitness accounts and give you a recording of the things that the people who were there, who saw it with their own eyes, could talk about and could testify like, like they were in court. So that's why he very quickly goes to this man named Zachariah. Fifth verse I'll read it for you in the days of Herod king of Judah there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord but they had no child at all Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years we learn a lot about those people just in that little nugget of information. Zechariah was a priest. That meant his father was a priest, his grandfather was a priest, his great-grandfather was a priest, his great-great-grandfather. You couldn't become a priest unless you were born of a family, a line from Aaron that were priests. He lived in the hill country outside of Jerusalem, somewhere in the south of Jerusalem. He married a woman named Elizabeth, Elizabeth. She was from a priestly family too. We don't know if her father was priestly or if her mother was from that kind of a family, but she's described as a daughter of Aaron. So we know she was from a priestly family. You know, that was considered a double blessing when a priest married a woman who was also from a priestly family. They understood each other. They knew the sacrifice. They knew the commitment. They knew what was important. And it was a double blessing for them to come together and represent two families in that home. We also learn that they're righteous and blameless in their walk before God. Righteous is a very interesting word. It's used several times in the book of Luke. It's normally used to describe God. His decrees are righteous. His ways are righteous. Matter of fact, it's a metaphor for God himself. God is righteous and he's holy. It's, it's the rightness of God's way. Particularly when it's applied to a person. And in this case, it's applied to both Zachariah and Elizabeth. They, they think like God. They act like God. They make decisions like God. It doesn't mean they're perfect. That's not what it means. It means the habit pattern of their life (coughs) is the way that God wants them to live. So they stick out and they're noticeable This is going to be used to describe somebody in just a few verses. Somebody by the name of Joseph. Who's about to take a woman who's pregnant as his wife. Named Mary. Later on. In just a chapter or so. It's going to be used of a man named Simeon. Who's an old man in the temple. Who happens to be there when the young baby Jesus is going to be brought in for that dedication. And he sees... Well, the things that we were talking about in Zechariah's song, the the, the light coming in and the Messiah. Later on at the end of the book, it's used to describe another man. His name is also Joseph, but he's from Arimathea. He's the brave guy that went in and asked for the body of Jesus Christ after he was killed because he wanted to give him a fitting burial, put him in his own tomb. Of course, turns out Jesus only needed it for the weekend and so he got the tomb back, but that didn't negate his righteous activity at all. So here we have these people that are righteous, blameless. They're, they're, well, somebody to pay attention to and get to know as a, like we would a mentor or a role model. We also know that they're old. They have no children. Apparently, Elizabeth never could have a child. She's barren. And they described as old. We, we don't know how old Zachariah was. I mean, as I'm thinking about other couples like this in the Bible, I'd, I'd say, well, he's not as old as Abraham was. And I don't think from our perspective, he would be nearly as old as, say, Darren McWatters is. <laughs> He'd be more a Jeff Lilly kind of a guy, I think. About that old. In other words, lovely people... But they were a stage in their life where they were going to have a child and they'd given up on that thought because it just, it couldn't happen. Wouldn't happen. I'm sure that had to break their heart, particularly when you realize that in a priestly family like this, one of the goals you have is to have a son. So your line or your father's line, your grandfather's line, it'll be able to continue on in the ministry before God that they're called to do that that hadn't happened. Even though I'm sure he prayed about it every day of his adult life after he got married, that God would send him a son, just like he'd pray, here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Just like he'd pray for the Messiah coming, just like he would pray for a host of other things. I'm sure that was the habit pattern of his life. But when we come to the next section of scripture, we find him being called to Jerusalem, an old man to serve in his priestly course of duty. They had two weeks of service. You know, they did lots of different things when they came. I'm sure uh, if you come early in the morning here around this place, I mean, earlier than you normally come, you'll, you'll see it's a hive of activity. There's people doing all kinds of things. Sometimes you see people doing the same things that they always do, but sometimes a problem comes up and other people have to come in and help and different people have to come together. You never know what's going to have to happen in order to get the doors open, keep them open and take care of everything that's going on. And priests had to do that. They had all kinds of responsibilities they had to fulfill. However, the plum assignment And you were only eligible to get it one time. The plum assignment is if you got chosen by lot to give the offering of incense, which was done twice a day. That's what everybody wanted to do. And there were so many priests, and it was such a rare thing, they drew lots for it to happen. And and for example, if you were the youngest priest there, and it was your first time, and you were drawn by lot, and you did it as a young man, you would never be eligible to do it again. Now, Zechariah is an old man, and he comes in our story, and he's chosen by lot. He's waited his whole life. I'll bet you if his father had been chosen, and I'm just assuming he maybe was, his father would have told him what it was like when he got to do this. If he, if he lived so he knew his grandfather, his grandfather would have told him about what it's like when you go into the holy place. And There's a legacy. So while he had to be very happy about being chosen for that, as every priest would want, he also had to be just a little bit sad, I would think that here he is at the later stages of his life and he's not going to be able to tell any of his descendants about the experience he had when he did this. Now, now here's how that whole thing set up. Once the temple opened and people started coming, you know, there were sacrifices, there were sin sacrifices and just all sorts of things, different kinds of animals and people coming. So the altar was moving and working Somewhere before those sacrifices took place, two or three people would be chosen to go in and clean out the holy of holies. Now, remember, the holy of holies is, is in the middle, uh, and the ta- excuse me, the tabernacle is uh, the holy of holies, and the holy place is in the middle of what was the tabernacle and is now the temple. Think of it like this: it's sort of a box in a box in a box. And the littlest box at the top is the Holy of Holies. And that's where in Solomon's temple, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And we know that it's no longer there. Of course, Indiana Jones found that and it's now in a government repository. Next to it, twice as long, like the size of two boxes, was the Holy Place. And that's where the priest would come in. There was business to do in the holy place. Once a week over here, the table of showbread, you had to have 12 new loaves of bread put. It represented the 12 tribes of Israel as they were before God. And it also represented God's provision in the way he fed them and took care of them. Over on this side was the golden candlestick. We might call it a menorah. People all over the world today of the Jewish faith are talking about that candlestick today because today is the first day of Hanukkah. There's another story about what happened once in this holy place during an intertestamental inter- uh, time when uh, there was not enough oil except for one day and it burned for eight. And that's what the Hanukkah is all about. It's called the Feast of the Dedication in the Bible and Jesus celebrated it. So I'm going to take that. Right here would be the altar of incense. It was a mini altar with horns on it, like the big altar outside. And so when they were coming in and topping off the oil and cleaning, they'd brush off the dead coals and get things ready and everything all set. And this incense sat right in front of the veil. The veil of the temple that separated everyone from God. Only the high priest could go in once a year, bring an atonement for sin once a year, give it for the people once a year. Nobody else could go in there. Even the priest couldn't go in there. It's interesting that we got a Hanukkah song out of that, get a Christmas song out of this. And I hate to spoil it for you, about 34 years down the road, the hands of God are gonna rip open that veil. So the blood of the sacrifice Jesus Christ will be able to go in and make atonement for sin. We ought to be able to get an Easter song out of that, don't you think? But for this point, we're right here. And we know that as offerings are being made, coals are being stoked, people are coming in. Some of them actually had offerings being made that day. Other people are coming at both the morning and the evening, afternoon times of special worship to be present. It it was like a service, I guess you'd say. And as they all gathered, there would come a time when a pile of those coals would have been given to Zachariah. And all by himself, he would go into the holy place and place them on the altar. And at the same time, he would put incense on it made up of four ingredients, three of which I've never heard of, I doubt you have either, but one of them was frankincense, which is a comfortable word for us. And those burning incense, those hot coals, would send up an aroma before God representing the people. it's, It's hard for us to kind of get our handle on that because we don't do anything quite like that. But... On the other hand, it does remind me of communion time a bit. Where we're thinking about sacrifices, making atonement for sin. Where people are bowing down, whether they're praying outside, even priests are sometimes prostrate on the ground. There's an appropriateness to what should have been thought about and what should have been done. It's not unlike in our own communion services when... Invariably, someone will say, let every person examine themselves. Have you heard that? It's a warning in scripture to examine yourself. And remember that we're approaching the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, the broken body shed for us. I mean, it's it's appropriate to think about certain things at that time. And I've been to many communion services in this room and, and that's always been that way. I have been to one somewhere else in another state far, far away. That rhymes with nexus. And I heard a really routine, good prayer by an elder at a communion time. And then he said, and by the way, God, please make it possible for the Cowboys to win today. And also for the minister to be done early so we can all make it home in time for the kickoff you are a much more spiritual group than the first service because they laughed. (laughs) And when they laughed, I said, well, you can laugh. But I stepped back because I was a little close to where that guy was. If he had an attitude like that in the temple, and there were times when priests did have that, that was not tolerated and they were taken away, taken out. Now, I'm not saying exactly what he prayed about. I think he came with a heavy heart because he was the last of his line. But he was a good and honest, righteous, holy priest. So I think he was doing his job and praying prayers of salvation and redemption and thanksgiving. While all the people joined him in prayer. And it it says that he was ministering at this altar and he was taking care of everything. When all of a sudden he realized he was not alone. Because an angel of the Lord appeared, his name was Gabriel. Now, I don't know if he slipped up behind him and tapped him on the shoulder like this, or if he was Zechariah was standing like this and all of a sudden that bright light just took him. But the Bible tells us that he was sore afraid and he fell on his knees, that whole kind of, you know, well, am I, I'm a man of unclean lips sort of an attitude. And this is what... The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. for the lord a people prepared it just so happened i think zechariah he'd been praying all those years god was aware that jeremiah or excuse me zechariah's prayers coincided with his own accomplishments in his own agenda and so it's at that particular time i think it was staged by god i think it was staged by the holy spirit to come and tell him big things are happening. And, and it's not just about you and having a son. Although it's it's mostly about that. You're going to have a son. His name is John. He's going to be great before the God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know how unusual that is? We think of the Holy Spirit and we're very much aware with it. We understand that Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. But this is still Old Testament time, even though you're in the book of Luke. The new covenant doesn't take place till the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church. He's still living under Old Testament law. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's kind of rare. You can almost count in your fingers and toes the kinds of people that, and people we know that had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Prophets, usually. Priests, often. Kings, sometimes. Maybe artisans who needed to make, well... This equipment, this furniture and these veils, Samson, a judge, when it says, and and the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, you can jolly well bet there's a whole lot of Philistines getting ready to die. God empowered people with the Holy Spirit to do a mighty job, a mighty work. When he had something special he wanted done. And with this little baby, basically what he's saying that's going to come to John. Don't put anything in him but the Holy Spirit and, of course, food. You know, don't don't be drunk with wine. Don't fill up with that sort of thing. I mean, there's a reason why brain surgeons are not supposed to drink before they perform an operation. There's a reason why plane pilots are not supposed to drink before they fly. And basically, it's a way of saying, I want him dedicated to me. I want him to be my vessel. I want to fill him up. That's the purpose in him coming to you. I want him to turn children away from their fathers to God. Now, that sounds kind of funny, I think. But remember, it's just right in there. We also talk about Elijah. Elijah was a great reformer. Elijah was a great prophet. A great prophet who came to Israel at a time when they had strayed away from God. And he tried to turn the fathers back to God. He would go after the children so they did not make the same mistakes of their fathers. So he could produce a people that belonged to him like that who could... This man prepare a way for the Lord to come and fulfill his destiny. <laughs> Zachariah basically said, this can't be happening. And the angel basically said, because we're editing for time. Once you think about it for a while and to help you think, you're not going to be able to speak until this baby is born. And if we go to the 62nd verse... At the time when the baby is born and we see people talking to him, we find out that it's more than he just couldn't speak. He apparently couldn't hear because they had to make signs. They couldn't talk to him. So apparently he was both silent by mouth and by ear. He, he was like, we'll put you in a bubble And so he comes out after making the sacrifice, instead of being able to put a blessing on the people who had been there, that is what they expected for this priest who had just ministered before the Ark of God. It was chaos. He goes home. Apparently he's able to communicate with his wife because she's pregnant after that. And she also is going to know that she's supposed to name this child John. So they have to be in communication. That's why it's really important when the story that Jeff Lilly told last week about Mary coming to see Elizabeth, I don't doubt for a fact that Elizabeth was able to communicate with her husband the fact that the mother of this Messiah, this chosen one, that comes into their own son's story... Spoke to her, and that she, being full of the Holy Spirit, also noticed that her son, who was full of the Holy Spirit, jumped when he heard that name. And knows that Mary even used words about salvation in talking about her song that she wrote. That's a great setup. It brings us to the time when John is ready to be born, and we remember that Zechariah has been in a bubble. At least for nine months. It might have been ten. I don't know quite how long that took. But let's put it this way. He'd had some time to think about it. He couldn't talk. He couldn't hear. He was in a bubble of silence. And he had time to think. Maybe he was journaling in his head. Every piece of communication he got. Reinforced the message of the angel. And then it came down to the time. Where the baby was born. And the neighbors wanted to name it Zachariah, and Zachariah and and Elizabeth said, No, it's John, and finally they motioned to him and tried to get him to change it, and so it's Zachariah. He says, No, he writes. His name is John. All of a sudden, everything changes. He hears, he speaks, and he writes songs. I think he journaled his feelings, all of the things. I mean you're looking at the song that he has it's not just the particulars of what happened to him it's you can see the priestly service you can see all of the prophets you can see all of these things coming together in that song that was read to you earlier today it's an amazing song nuggets of information I was journaling myself and so I decided instead of just reading it to you again, I'll give it to you in some nuggets of information. So I've got three D words real quickly in his song. Verse 16, he says, he's, he's dwelling, defending in David. In other words, he dwells, he has visited us, he has redeemed us. He defends, he's our horn of salvation. If you think a horn of salvation is not a very intimidating thing, I hope you get locked in a paddock sometime with a bull that's got horns and is angry. You'll see how quickly that is a terrifying thought. and a defense mechanism. And David, he, he brings David up. He brings it into the song. Because it's all about God keeping his promises. This is one promise after another, after another, after another. It's all starting to make sense. It goes on to P words. Prophets, promises, and provides. Countless prophecies, pro- promises, salvation. I will give you salvation. Salvation from your enemies, salvation from sin, our greatest enemy. Provides, merciful, sal- sanctions, care. Go on to C words, down to verse 72. Covenant, calling, commitment. You know, we learned so much about the covenant in the twelfth chapter of the book of Genesis a few years ago when we were going through that. Covenant comes over up over and over and over and over. I will be your God, you will be my people. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will bless, or I will curse. And eventually it gets to the part about, and through you all peoples on the earth will be blessed? It's a covenant about coming into a relationship. And all of this is messianic. All of these things are messianic. What God is wanting to do. It's all coming together. And three-fourths of the song that he sings is about the Messiah. It's not about his own son. Because the big ticket item here is about the Messiah. Covenant. That we might serve him. That's our calling. That we might serve him. We're blessed to be a blessing. And commitment being holy and righteous like this singer all the days of our life. That's what this song is about. And it's only then that he goes to verse 76 and says, Oh, you child, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. And we see about prophesies and prepares and points. He finally comes down in this song, having spent so much time putting all the jumble of everything that goes on in the Old Testament leading up to this point in a nuggets, memory nuggets, condensed. Son, you will be the messenger of God. You will go before the Lord to prepare the way. You will point to the knowledge of salvation. You will point the forgiveness of sins. You will point to where there is light for those who are in darkness. You will point the way to peace. You will point to the Messiah. I wonder who he actually wrote this song for. If you read it, it starts out, blessed be God. He's blessing God. He's honoring God. Benedictus, the Latin name for this song that was probably written in Aramaic, translated into Greek, written in, translated into Latin, changed to English, et cetera, et cetera. Benediction, blessings. I'm sure he did it for God, but he also did it for the neighbors. He also did it for establishments priests, people who might question anything about what he said or did or saw to make sure they knew. After all, he was in the holy place when the angel of the Lord came and just basically almost nailed up a manifesto about what was getting ready to happen. He did it so all of his Jewish brothers and sisters would be able to know how everything comes together. He did it in such a way so that all the Gentiles who come after us and who Luke was even writing this book for, we'll know from an eyewitness account. But I also think he wrote it for John, his son, the son of his old age. I don't know how he felt after he got that son, but I would kind of think if I was his age, I wonder if I'm going to get this kid through high school. I wonder if I'm going to live to get him through college. I wonder if I'm going to see him get married, or, you know, all the things that you think about. I wonder, how am I, if I die early, how am I going to be able to communicate to him the things that are most important? The, in a way that he'll be able to remember. In a way where he'll be able to, well, have so much to think about, he can't do it all in one time. And I think that's how he journaled and under the influence of the Holy Spirit wrote this song. So his son... Would have a roadmap, A plan. A battle plan. And it tells us. Immediately. After this song. That the child grew. Became strong in the spirit. And he was in the wilderness. Until the days of his public appearance. In Israel. It doesn't say he lived at home. I don't know if he had any home to live in. But I do know. He had a message. Definition. Straight From the horse's mouth, who saw it, a priest, a righteous priest who put it all together. And we get to read it, we get to sing about it, we get to celebrate it. Let's pray. (coughs) Oh, Father, we thank you for all those who've come before and left behind a witness, a witness to the fact that you keep your promises. You you boldly lead us. You prepare us. You guide us. You give us the things, the power that we need through your spirit to accomplish the tasks that you have for us to do. May we never forget the sacrifices you have made for us. May we never forget the way that you sustain us. And may we never lose our love and appreciation for you. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.